I have the uh, privilege of introducing our guest speaker this morning. Uh, I first met the Garofalos several years ago through our denomination's church planting agency called MA Mission to North America. The Garofalos are passionate about church planting. They're passionate about church planting because they have a deep, sincere desire to introduce Jesus to those who don't know him. Not only did pa Pastor Santo and Mary Ellen plant a church in Atlantic City, New Jersey, but Mary Ellen also served as a, coordinary, a coordinator for MNA's assessment centers for many years. Well, after serving in Atlantic City for almost 14 years, God is calling them now to a new chapter in their lives. God's calling them to serve as missionaries to Italy, which is where Santo is originally from. And their hope is to bring the gospel to the Italians starting next year. If you've ever met Santo and Mary Ellen, you won't forget them. Why? Because their joy and laughter and love are infectious. And I believe it comes from hearts that are deeply steeped in the gospel of grace. And so it's my deep privilege to introduce Pastor Santo to you at this time. Let's give him a new life welcome. Thanks, brother. You definitely want me to be able to see my notes so I stay on track. <laughs> well, good morning. It's so awesome to see you all. Thank you so much for having us this morning. It's exciting. Um, before we open with a, a word of prayer for the message, um, I don't want to talk a lot about our call to Italy this morning because I'm here to preach the word. But I do want to just mention a couple things about it before we jump right in our text. Um, so I don't know if you know this, um, I just found this out not too long ago, this, this year, but Italy is made up of only 1% evangelical Christians, and that includes everything. <laughs> so that means some of those groups aren't uh, doctrinally sound, some of those groups are pretty extreme in their views, and that's 1%. Well, to give you some perspective, China is about 6% evangelical. So it just gives you um, an idea of the need in Italy. And so one thing I want to say is, um, as you hear this text this morning, and I hope you hear God's voice to you through the Word of God, um, I hope you'll be thinking and praying about the people of Italy, especially southern Italy, that, they, that there would be more churches planted like this one that, that preach uh, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we want to, hear, we want to see many more Italians hear this message. Amen? That's all. And, and as Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about that. But let's uh, open with prayer before I read the scriptures. Father God, as we uh, look at this wonderful text from your word, as we look at the Apostle Paul's words to Titus, God, um, open our hearts. You know where we've been this week, even this morning. Some of us have to pray like King David, seek your servant, for I have strayed like a lost sheep. Others of us have been fighting uh, the good fight this week, uh, trying to uh, keep the line, hold the line for the kingdom of God, and we're weary, Lord, and everything in between. So, Lord Jesus, um, speak to our hearts, and may, uh, may we hear a, a word from heaven that we might 
put all our weight on it, completely trust you in your word, Lord, that we might grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you open with me to the, Paul's letter to Titus, I'm going to actually be reading from the NIV, the 1984 version, because I got saved in 1986, and you know, this is the version I read, and it sounds like English to me. So, <laughs> so we will do our best. I'm going to read some of the context so we understand um, the text better. Um, our text will be verses 11 to 15, but we're going to read from verse 1, Titus 2. Um, in our church, I don't know what your, your custom is, we stand for the reading, so let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hear God's word to you this morning. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now here's our text. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the Apostle Paul takes Brother Titus to school. And actually, he's taken us all to school this morning. And we're not talking about Harvard or Yale. We're talking about a much more important school, and actually a school that has the master teacher, the master teacher called Grace. A teacher, now listen, this is the awesome thing about the teacher called Grace. He doesn't only show us the way, like give us a map and then say, good luck. But he shows us the way. And then listen to this, he empowers us to walk in it. That's the rub, right? It's like the law. The law can point out what we need to do, but it can't give us the power to do it. Can I get an amen? Well, this teacher called Grace can. 
William Barclay puts it this way, there are a few passages in the New Testament which set forth the moral power of the incarnation. Because we're not simply talking about the grace of God, are we? We're talking about the God of grace. And so what we're going to see this morning is that the grace of God and Jesus Christ is the foundation and the incentive, and I might add the motivation, for Christian living. So here's the three things we'll see in the text. The grace of God, first of all, brings salvation. Second of all, the grace of God teaches and instructs. And last of all, my personal favorite, the grace of God motivates. True, biblical, godly motivation. So let's take a look at the first one. The grace of God brings salvation. Look at the first verse. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So first of all, we got to unpack the word grace a little bit because, you know, it's like the word love. You know, everybody sings about it, we hear about it, but a lot of times uh, we don't understand what it really means because in some ways it's overused. Well, it comes from the Greek word charis, which simply means unearned or unmerited favor. It's not something you work for, it's a gift. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, something that God gives us freely, it comes from the root word charis, grace. Now, I know uh, Pastor Jeff can relate to this. As a pastor, I'm always looking for the best definition of things. It's like, you know, I like to collect sea glass. I don't know if you know what that is on the ocean. You know, that's always been a fun thing I like to do as a kid. Well, as, in my older years as a pastor, I like to collect the most perfect definitions of things. And here's one I found uh, from William Hendrickson, a Dutch Reform uh, brother who's now with Jesus. And he gives this excellent definition of grace. God's grace is his active favor, listen to this, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. Isn't that awesome? It's something to sink in. It's something to really understand. And notice about this grace, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, of course, when it talks about, when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he has to mean the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That means that Jesus himself is the grace of God that brings salvation. He is God's gift to man. And all we can do is receive him as a free gift. Listen, maybe you'll understand it better this way. This helped me. John 14, Jesus says what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So Jesus is all those things. He is life. He is truth. He is the way. Well, here we see he is grace. He is God's favor to men. And now notice, this is so incredible. He's appeared to all men. That means slave and free, male, female, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. The Greek word translated as appeared here is the word epiphania. You know when you say, I had an epiphany? And it's used in the New Testament to refer to Christ's first coming four times and his second coming six times. And in this text, it's used to refer to both his first and his second coming. And here's the point that Paul's making. This grace, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, it was promised in the Old Testament, it was, it was present in seed form and in shadow form in the Old Testament, has now burst forth over the horizon. And it's shined its marvelous light upon our darkness, and it has penetrated our darkness in the person of Jesus. Listen, 
I don't know about you, but I remember when I first got saved in 1986, my first Christmas as a Christian. I was so excited because I was like, I understand now. I know what this is. I'm celebrating Jesus' birth, the one who bled for me and died. Now, in the Old Testament, you have to understand something. Yes, grace of God was present, but it was a far off. And it was a little here with a, a family, a group of family called the Jews, and maybe a select Gentile here, another little Gentile there. But in the main, just like C.S. Lewis puts it, it was always winter and never Christmas. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. But he didn't experience it yet the way that we do. He looked forward to it and died in faith. We have it in its full shining forth through Jesus' death and resurrection. So here's the point. Any talk of reforming our behavior, of becoming a more godly person, that doesn't start right here on the foundation of grace is useless. It's vain. It's to build your whole life on a faulty foundation. And that's why sometimes when we share the gospel with those who lived a life uh, that was uh, basically led by a works-oriented religion, they realize they have to repudiate their whole foundation, that they could never be good enough. That's by grace. And they have to humble themselves and just receive it. Listen, when you were a kid, speaking of Christmas, and your parents gave you, let's say, one of your favorite gifts or a toy, I have yet to meet one child who said, pull out their wallet or you know, reach in their pocket and say, how much I owe you? No, it's called a gift. We receive it, and we say thank you so much. So our hope, our confidence must be placed upon Christ alone. We sang about it just a few moments ago, upon his grace, his power to save, his complete salvation, listen, given to unworthy, undeserving sinners. When, my, when I was first saved, my mom used to say to me, because we went back and forth, because I grew up in a works-oriented religion, she said, if salvation was by grace, then you could live any way you want to. And I remember saying to my mom, seriously? <laughs> you remember me before grace, right? <laughs> Coming home all hours of the night, drunk out of my mind, under the influence, accruing all kinds of debt, being lazy, not working. But now you've seen me since Jesus saved me. Got a job, paid all my debts, no more drinking and, and drugging. Yeah, I still come home 1 o'clock in the morning, but it's only because some non-believer caught my ear and I shared the gospel with them <laughs> for hours. Or I was at a Bible study. Or I was up in my room. What are you doing up there? And I was praying. I'm not saying that about me. I'm saying about what the grace of God can do. That's the power of grace that brings salvation to all men. It takes a loser. And it makes them useful in the kingdom of God. And so I want to give you some good news here. Um, the grace of God finally conquered my mom's heart, this little Sicilian woman, 98 pounds, soaking wet. Um, one day we were at the dinner table, and my mom would always go back and forth between uh, our, the, the difference in doctrine in her church and my church, now PCA. And um, 
One day we're going back and forth, and my dad said, oh, just leave him alone. He's going through a phase. And my dad was like, he's not a big talker. He's a, he's a real, was a real strong bricklayer, man of few words. And so I was shocked to hear my mom's response. She said, you be quiet. Can't you see Jesus brought us our son back? You could have heard a pin drop. The grace of God that brings salvation has now appeared to all men. But it doesn't just bring salvation. Notice what the grace of God does here, Paul says. It teaches. So let's take a look just for a few moments to see what the grace of God teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, the same grace that justified us, you know what justification is, it's being declared righteous, It's where Jesus takes our sins on himself on the cross and then gives us his righteousness to our account so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus and his perfect record. That's justification. The same grace that justified us, guess what? Sanctifies us. Sanctification is where God progressively makes us more righteous in actual practice. And yes, there is a big gap between justification and sanctification because God has a lot of work to do in your life and He has a lot of work to do in my life. That's why, you know, these signs we've been traveling for like 45 days now and it's like men at work. You know, you, when you see that sign, you go, oh, my money, Ancora, again. Well, you know, in the church, we get frustrated, right? When we we sin against each other, we mess up. But we have to remember, there's a little sign on each of our heads that says what? God at work. And he is at work. On that great foundation of grace, God teaches us to say no. That's what his school's all about, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. See, anyone who tells you, like my mom misunderstood years ago, that grace leads to loose morals or lazy spirituality or careless Christian living, knows nothing of the true grace of God. They've never experienced it in their lives, if they tell you that. Now, I know this can sound kind of crass. It sounds like Paul has just given us this plan. Just say no. Well, of course, he's not saying that in the sense that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just try harder. But he is saying that in the context of grace. Grace teaches us as we look at the cross and we look at uh, the evil that we might do, we realize, no, God did not save me for this. He didn't pull me out of that muck and mire for me to go dive and headlong back into it. Notice what it says here in the text. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify uh, people for himself that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, in light of that amazing grace, that incredible love, we say no more and more in our lives to ungodliness and worldly passion. We say, how can I continue in this godly lifestyle when Jesus has given himself freely to forgive me and set me free? Listen, let me put it to you this way. This might help you out. Only the gospel has the power to take the ought to and turn it into want to. That's what the gospel does. 
There was a hot-tempered officer who once struck a common soldier who was known for his courage. The young soldier, knowing that the regulations forbade him to do any retaliation, simply said, I'll make you repent. One day, in the heat of a furious battle, the young, courageous soldier saw an officer wounded and separated from his company, gallantly striving to force his way through the enemy who surrounded him. The young, the young soldier then jumped, rushed to his aid, supported the wounded man with his arm. They fought together through the enemy lines, back to their own line. And then the officer, in a burst of emotion, cried out to the young soldier, What a return for an insult so carelessly given. The young soldier just pressed his hand in turn and with a gentle smile said, I told you I'd make you repent. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. When instead of saying what we like to say, that's why we watch Clint Eastwood movies, <laughs> I'm going to get my revenge. You just wait. I'll be back. Is that what Jesus says? No, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's our glorious Lord. And that's what his gospel does in our hearts. It, may, it melts them. It makes them pliable in the hands of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, Paul says later on in Titus, I want you to stress these things, Titus, so that those who have trusted in God will be careful to do what is good. The grace of God brings salvation. The grace of God teaches us to live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And last of all, my favorite one, the grace of God motivates. First, let's take a look at this future hope that motivates us. Look at verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, not a hope, not one of the hopes we have, but the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. See, here's the thing. We should be expectantly awaiting our king's return. This is something on a daily basis we should have in front of us. It's not one of those things you read it, you put it on the shelf, you get back to it someday, or one of those things you put in the back of your mind, tuck it away, yeah, I learned that, we're good with that. No, this is something that should be in front of us constantly. It should be our blessed hope. It says in the Bible as well that he's returning for those who have been waiting for him. I hope this morning you're longing for his appearing. There was a tourist who visited this beautiful garden in the state, and of all places, Italy. I didn't do this on purpose. I just found this illustration, but it was in Italy. And he spoke to the caretaker of this estate, and he said, how long have you been here? And the caretaker said, 25 years. And how often has the owner been here to see the estate? He says, four times. Well, when did he come last? 12 years ago. Well, who comes to look after things then? And the caretaker said, I'm pretty much left alone. And then the gentleman said, you, you keep the garden so spick and span that one would think you're expecting the owner tomorrow. And the caretaker said, today, sir. Today. Be ye ready, for you know not the hour in which I come. 
You know, uh, I, I do want to mention this. I said I wasn't going to talk a lot, a lot about Italy, but for some reason, things are, things are coming to my mind. When I first uh, reconnected, or connected really for the first time in my life, with all my relatives in Italy, and there are many, one in particular, my, my Zia Grazia, my Aunt Grace, who is my Grandpa Santo. His, he's also Santo. My dad is Santo. I'm Santo. I know, holy, 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 knock it off. No, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but his youngest uh, sister was Grace Grazia. And she was about 89 when I met her, but all my family, I would say 90% of them, only speak Italian. And I didn't learn Italian because my mom, whose first language was Sicilian, was made fun of as a child. Some of you can relate to that, uh, being uh, you know, an immigrant's child in America, her first language being Sicilian. So she did not teach us because she didn't want us to be picked on. She wanted us to be American. And so now I'm like, I have to learn Italian, like really quick, or else I'm not going to be able to communicate with my cousins, and if you've ever tried like Google Translate, wow, you could really get yourself in trouble when they they'll look at the translation and say, really? But anyway, so I decided to do the Pimsleur approach, escolti, ripeta, listen and repeat, kind of like how you learned language as a kid. You just listened and you mimicked it until you figured it out. And I did that for, I don't know, eight months or so. And, um, and I also walked on the boardwalks. I know I needed to lose about 40 pounds to be healthy to travel and all that. And, um, you know, I had wanted to lose weight for so long, right? And I had wanted to learn Italian my whole life, but never got around to it. Well, after those eight months, I lost about 35 pounds. And when I got to Italy, I was speaking Italian to my cousins and to my great aunt, who, by the way, died at 98. So we had all that time together. Why did I bring the story up? I'll tell you why I bring the story up. Because I had complete trust and faith that I was actually someday going to see her face to face. And I would need to be ready for that moment. Why did I lose weight when I didn't lose weight all those other years? I didn't have the what? Motivation. Well, here's what I'm telling you. Your glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is really coming back. And you're really going to see him someday, just as sure as I saw my aunt face to face. And she said to me, looking at your face is like seeing the face of my brother. Someday you're going to look at Jesus' face and you're going to say, not looking at your face is like seeing the face of God. You're going to be saying, I see the face of my Savior and my God. I can't give you greater motivation. But I'm not giving it to you. God is in his word. So the fact that the blessed hope is, is a sure reality should move us and motivate us uh, to live self-controlled and upright lives and godly lives in this present age as we wait for that. And then the second and last thing about motivation, he puts them together. Look at also, it's as he talks about the grace to come when Jesus comes, he goes back to grace received in the past. Look at verse 14 again who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What Paul wants us always to keep in mind is how much Jesus loves us and what Jesus has done, the cost to his own person to win you back for God, to redeem you from all wickedness. So that instead of looking up when he comes and seeing a judge, you get to see 
a Savior. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the school of grace has two windows, one facing east and one facing west. Through the one window, a solemn light flows from Mount Calvary. From the other shines the light of sunrising, the herald of a brighter day. See, that's the point. This is one time you get to be two-faced, right? Christians should always be looking back at the cross and always be looking forward to his second coming. There's nothing more powerful than the grace of God. The gospel changes us radically from the inside out and it enables us who used to say yes to ungodliness and worldly passions with no qualm of conscience. It enables us now to begin to say no to those things and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And I, I love in the text what it says here. He did this to create a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at my brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially I look at myself in the mirror, and I just say, where is this transformation, <laughs> this powerful gospel you know, motivation? I'm not seeing it as much as I would like to. And sometimes I might even say, I just don't see it. Well, people that know me know that I love going to Narnia a lot. I love the Narnia books. I read them over and over again. Uh, movies, not the movies, not so much. Stick with the books. But anyway, there's this there's this lovely uh, little quote that uh, C.S. Lewis gives. Um, he makes this little um, editorial remark in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Real quick backstory: you have uh, two of the, uh, the the Penzies kids go back to Narnia with their cousin, and the cousin's name is Eustace Scrub, and C.S. Lewis says, and he almost deserved that name. And this kid was a B-R-A-T. This kid was rough. He was selfish and uh, just annoying. And throughout their travels, he, ends up the, he finds this great treasure. And he puts all this treasure on, these treasure, uh, this bracelet, gold bracelet, and a crown, all, this, all these things. And his greed gets to him, and he turns into a dragon. Now, it's kind of cool at first, right? Imagine you get to be a dragon for a little bit, man, breathing out fire, flying out in the air. But then he realizes he can't communicate with people. And he becomes very, very lonely to the point of complete despondency where he's trying to rip his own skin off to become a boy again, and he can't. And then in the story, he meets Aslan, the lion, who represents the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. And Aslan, through his grace, I won't tell the whole story, transforms him back into a boy. Makes him brand new. And then this is what C.S. Lewis says. This is why I, I teed up the story. Because I, one of the best comments on sanctification I have read anywhere in the English language. C.S. Lewis says this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. And can I get an amen? But there were still many a day when he could be very tiresome. But most of these I shall not notice. The cure had begun. 
It's like in Narnia when the, the queen and her evil minions are going through the snow and all of a sudden the sled stops and they can't move anymore. And the evil elf says, this is no ordinary thaw. No, because Aslan is on the move. Church, Jesus has come and he is on the move. He's doing his work. You can watch the news and get depressed if you want, but Jesus will win his bride and he will sanctify his church. And in our part, we have the blessed hope that we are awaiting. And as things get rough and as we are tempted, we look back to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And that's our motivation to say, nah, I don't need to partake in sinful pleasures because there are pleasures, eternal pleasures forevermore at the right hand of my Lord when he comes back again to bring home those who have been eagerly waiting him, awaiting his return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for you and your son and your spirit who dwells in us and who moves us to take your word by faith and to live upright lives, godly lives in this present age. We thank you, Jesus, that you are coming again and even more sure than I got to see my aunt's face, we will all see your face and your people. We will rejoice at sins forgiven, at bodies healed, at fellowship completely restored. So Lord, while we await that day, continue, Lord, to make us more like you, Jesus. That's what holiness is. That we might not only be blessed, but Lord, we want to be a blessing. And we want to be useful to you. So do it, Lord, because we cannot do it in our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.